Well, good morning. It's so good to be with you and to open God's Word and sit under it together each and every week. We're going to continue our study of the songs of the Exodus this morning. Last week, if you were here, Shaka had covered the redemption song of Moses in Exodus 15. What's interesting about that song is right after that, um, they forgot. And we're going to talk about memory this morning. But this week we're going to be in the songbook of the Bible, the Psalms, specifically Psalm 78. And I would recommend, if you don't have a Bible, to grab one. They're, they're on the aisles because we're going to cover a lot of ground and it will be helpful to follow along. So go ahead and have that. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take that with you as our gift. We'd be honored if you'd do that. What is it that we remember? We remember what is most important to us. Often we'll memorialize people or events so that we won't forget. Even if it's only in pictures. Maybe you're like me and often go back through your Google photos to remember what life was like 10, 20 years ago or when your kids were smaller. We memorialize those memories. And we'll probably all agree that memory matters. Yet we also know how frail we are and how easy it is for us to forget. That's one of the reasons why we meet together every week is the reminder of God's faithfulness as we meet together and pray and sing and open God's word. And who hasn't heard Those who fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. Memory matters. Maybe I'm going to reveal a little too much about myself, but I don't know about you, but I have trouble remembering names, meeting a lot of new people. Hopefully I'm not alone, but I even do those games in my mind to remember, okay, John, okay, great. But I have a horrible time with that. Or maybe you look at your watch, thinking you look to see what time it is, and then 10 seconds later, you're like, what time is it? And you look again, somebody was laughing, so maybe I'm not alone in that. But one story from about 20 years ago that keeps playing back in my mind as I think about memory matters is my brother and I would often, you know, call my mom for her birthday. But he was a little more forgetful, so it was my job to call him and remind him to call her. And there was that one year where I forgot to do that. And so he forgot to wish her a happy birthday. And what's worse, he even talked to her on the phone on her birthday. So um, what my mom does now and has done over these last 20 years every year at Christmas is to give my brother a calendar, wall calendar, opened up, written on, with everybody's birthday written in as a reminder of, hey, call people for their birthdays. Maybe as a reminder, too, of how he failed. (laughs) One of the reasons we have memory issues are the limits of our brains, right? Scientists have studied this, the way our brains process information. But the Bible's very clear that 
we have memory issues for another reason. And that reason is our hearts. Our hearts have this default setting or position that we seem to forget. Particularly in our relationship with God, this is true. We have this sinful tendency to forget all the things that he's done for us. And what the result is, is our own unbelief or lack of faith. So our failure to remember God's grace and his faithfulness is also true of the Israelites. We've seen that as we studied the book of Exodus. But it's also the reason that Asaph wrote Psalm 78. It has a title, Psalm 78, a mascal of Asaph. Mascal meaning to teach or to have insight. It's basically a teaching song. Asaph was a Levite in a group that comprised the worship leaders of the temple, the musicians. And he was appointed by King David. That's the time that he's writing. We will see that at the end of this psalm. Is He's writing about King David coming to the throne. He wrote 12 psalms, Psalm 50, and then Psalm 73 through 83. But he writes this psalm to help us and the Israelites to remember. He knew that memory matters. It matters to our faith. So this morning, we're going to look at it in three parts. The first is the call to remember. And this is on your notes page if you like to keep notes. The call to remember or the call to faith. The second part, the cost of forgetfulness. So the fight for faith, the fight against unbelief or forgetfulness. And then we're going to wrap up by what this psalm points to, is to remember Jesus and to do that together. So would you stand with me as we read Psalm 78 in honor of God's word? Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we've heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and they, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So if you can tell from the beginning of this psalm, Asaph starts this psalm sounding like wisdom literature, like the Proverbs, right? I have a teaching, listen, give ear. He talks about children. The Proverbs often talk about a father giving advice to their sons, right? And so it's a teaching psalm. And Asaph's going to use this vast variety of Israel's history to teach us this lesson. So how does he begin? 
He begins with a call to action. Give ear. Incline your ears, he says. And what does he want us to listen to? What does he want us to pay attention to? Listen to my teaching, to the words of my mouth. And then he goes on to more specifically say, hey, pay attention. I'm going to share this parable from Israel's history that now we have some hindsight and I'm going to give you insight to what the story of what God was doing with the Israelites. He says, I'm going to tell you this parable. In other words, these sayings from of old, the things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. He's repeating the same thing four times. Anytime something's repeated in the Bible, it means pay attention, right? Uh, And so he really wants the listeners to really perk up and pay attention. Derek Kidner, commenting on the beginning of the psalm, said that the past holds up a mirror to the present and brings to light the true pattern of history. Or in other words, the psalmist is going to clarify this riddle of the past of Israel so that it becomes a lesson both for their present at the time of the psalm and ours now in the future. What is it that we know? So going back to the study of the book of Exodus, what do we know? We know that the creator God has revealed himself to the world. He has spoken to us through the written word. We have it written for us. And what has he spoken? He's told us a couple things. He's told us what he is like. We saw that in Exodus. What's his character? And also what he requires from us to be in a relationship with him. Mainly, faith and obedience. Ultimately, God has been on a mission from the very beginning to display his glory and to be in a relationship with the ones he's created for their good. So what is it, verse 3, that they have heard and known? Look at verse 4. The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. That's the exodus. That's what we've spent months studying. The way that God provided for a people who couldn't do anything for themselves. God stepped up and performed Verse 5, he also established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. He gave them the word. He gave them the Ten Commandments. This was a gift of grace we've studied previously. They know how they ought to relate to him. And so Asaph's call to remember is ultimately a call to faith, both for the Israelites who would be reading and singing this and to us and a call to obedience. Let's look also here in these first few verses. This call to remember is directed at them for the benefit of whom? Their children. And not only their children, but their children. Their children's children. So Asaph is saying, this call to remembrance is so important that we should teach this as the main thing that we give as a legacy to our children. It says, to the children yet unborn. 
Arise and tell them to their children. This is the how-to for creating a legacy of faith. Maybe some of you here this morning have been, have been beneficiaries of this legacy of faith in your family. Maybe grandparents or great-grandparents who taught your grandparents, who taught your parents, who've taught you and called you to remember the glorious deeds of the Lord. It's a blessing. And it also sounds like here at the beginning, a lot like Deuteronomy 6. Maybe that's going in your mind. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So Asaph says, if they remember the glorious deeds of the Lord and the wonders that he has done, they should tell the future generations who will benefit from knowing the Lord. This is actually one of the main reasons we care so deeply about children's ministry here at Trinity. This psalm is the motivation behind our ministry philosophy and much of the curriculum that we use. It matters how we teach our kids about what God has done. It's the most important thing we can do. And parents, we specifically have this calling to teach our kids, to point them to the faithful God, what he has done for us. Now we come to verse 7. This is the whole point of the psalm. So if you take nothing else from this whole sermon, here it is. Asaph wants us to know that we remember so that they should set their hope in God, not Forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So why is it that we, every week, every Sunday, meet together? We study the word together, we sing, and we pray, and we seek the Lord. Because we're called to remember, and otherwise we would forget. I don't know about you, but this week, the temptation to forget is high but it is good to be with you and to be under God's word and to be reminded, look and see what God has done. So this phrase, set your hope in him, remember the, Lord works, the Lord's works and keep his commandments. If you actually look at it more closely, it actually is a threefold purpose. It's a it's a string that builds on itself. Okay? So let's look at these and how they're interconnected. In the fight of faith, in this call to remember, the people of God have always been called to, and we're called to now, remember the works of God. When we remember what God has already done for us, then we will set our hope in him. And when we set our hope in him, it finally overflows into obedience 
or keeping his commandments. Do you see that? Asaph stresses the importance of remembering because it's costly to forget. If we will remember the good works that the Lord has done, then we will set our hope in him and then keep his commandments. And if you need to see the contrast, look no further than the verse we stopped on, verse 8. If we don't remember, if we forget, we become, verse 8, like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So look at the contrast in legacies. A call to remember where we share with our children and their children the glorious deeds of the Lord and they set their hope in God versus those who are like the fathers, their fathers, stubborn and rebellious. Ultimately, they walk into destruction. And you know what Asaph is saying here? He's asking the listener to choose. Friend, you and I have a choice this morning whether we will remember or not. So the first point, the call to remember, verses 1 through 7. Now, we see the second piece, the cost of forgetfulness. We've seen it in the result, verse 8, but what Asaph does is actually walks through the history of Israel in two different paths. And he says in the first one, basically in verses 12 through 42, he's going to look specifically at the Exodus. And then in 42 through 72, the end of the psalm, he's going to look at a more broad history of Israel, all the way up to the present day for him, which is in the time of King David. We're going to spend some time talking about this pattern that shows up in both of these passes, but we're only going to spend time reading one of them. Okay, But in case you see here, verse 9, it says the Ephraimites are armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. So the Ephraimites are the children of Joseph. They're the largest tribe in the north, but when you see it written, oftentimes they represent all of Israel. Okay? And they're contrasted later on in the psalm with the southern tribe of Judah, and that's the tribe that King David comes from. Okay? So we see in verse 8, what's the result of forgetting? And then verse 9, 10, and 11, they were armed with the bow. They turned back on the day of battle. This was the day that God was with them to fight for them. And they turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and his wonders. This was devastating, obviously. We're going to get to that. But Asaph's account here is, like I said, going to do two passes. Let's look at the first one. What we're going to notice is this pattern of it starts with God's goodness, his mercy, his, his provision. It's going to go and lead to Israel's disobedience, which then results in God's judgment and mercy, and then Israel's response. So let's do this real quick. Let's do a flyover. 
again, remembering what is this cost of forgetfulness? Verses 12 through 16, we see God's goodness. God's power and strength are displayed. He performed wonders in the land of Egypt. We've recounted those together. He divided the sea, as Shaka mentioned last week, and they walked on dry ground. And then he destroyed their enemies behind them. He led them in a cloud, with a cloud and a fiery light. He split rocks and gave them water to drink, streams from rocks. Who is like this God? Whatever they needed, he provided. Is anyone more capable than this God to provide? That's God's goodness. We've seen it time and time and time again. But verse 17, how does Israel respond? How do they respond to his grace and abundant provision? Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Do you see what they're saying? They just saw God's provision, miraculous. They did nothing to earn it, deserve it, or make it come about themselves. And they are questioning God, his ability, his goodness. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Can we, he give us bread and provide meat? He can. He does. But look, therefore when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath, a fire kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel. So God's judgment is seen in response to, to their disobedience. They preferred, the Israelites preferred the gifts of God instead of the giver. And friends, how often are we that way too? I can relate. Maybe you can too. Shaking a fist at God and saying, you need to serve me exactly how I ask as if waiting for God's provision means any, any, that he is any less faithful. How would you respond if somebody responded to your generosity in this way? How do you think God responds? He responds with, the wrath we just read about. It wasn't just about ingratitude, but that the fact that they did not believe or trust God. It's unbelief and it's sin. But you know what? Look here in verse 23. 
Yet he commanded the skies, skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread and of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. Mercy. Judgment and mercy. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the sea. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, and they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. He still provided. But that is the most dangerous place to be for the Israelites and for us. Because guess what? Read on here. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. the strongest of men in Israel are no match for God. The strongest powers in our day are no match for God. You and I are no match for God. It's seen here that the strongest men of Israel were put to death. Not the weak, not the women, not the babies, not anybody else, but the strongest, the fighters. And it was as if it was nothing to God. The proverbial knife to a gunfight. And in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. And he made their days vanish like a breath. But look what happened. When he killed them, verse 34, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. Looks like they repented, didn't they? The question is, was this genuine repentance? Friends, it is a dangerous thing to falsely repent, to not have genuine repentance. Listen to verse 36. They flattered him with their mouths They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. It was just lip service. It wasn't genuine repentance. Again, they just wanted to get out of a tough situation. They wanted God to provide and to save them, to get them out of a bind, not to have a relationship with the God who created them, who redeemed them who made them his own. And what does God do with stubborn and rebellious people? Like the Israelites. Like you and me. Verse 38. Yet God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. That's our God, a gracious, 
loving, heavenly Father who knows our weakness and is compassionate towards his people who are even rebels and stubborn like me. So how does Israel respond? Verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of of Israel. They did not remember his power. So there's the cycle. God's goodness, Israel's disobedience, God's judgment and mercy, and the people's response. It's not a good story. It does not reflect well on them. And I think if we look closely at it, it's our story. We're the same way, are we not? We can't look back and be like, well, they're idiots. What were they doing? What were they thinking? Because we're the exact same way. Verses 42 through the end of the psalm give the same cycle, but broaden the, the timeline. So we see in 42 through 55 God's goodness about the plagues in Egypt, how he delivered his people and put Pharaoh, the most powerful king in the land, to nothing. He put him down and he showed himself as the one true and living God. In verses 56 through 58, Israel disobeys. They tested and rebelled against God again. In 59 through 67, God's judgment and mercy. We don't have time, but this week, go back and read 1 Samuel 4 through 6. It's a story that's told here with some context of how God was in the Ark of the Covenant and went out to fight for his people. But they took the Ark of the Covenant and God was not with them. And they lost to the Philistines. You should read that and hear what that looks like. God's judgment, but also his mercy. And then there's this very interesting imagery here in verse 65 and following. The Lord awoke as from sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. God will not sleep. He always brings about his purposes. They are never thwarted. But look at verse 68 through 72. What is Israel's response? But God chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which has, he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful ham. So what did God do? God did not reject his people, but provided a way. Why did God do this? It says here in verse 68, he chose the tribe of Judah, 
Mount Zion, which he loves. God's love, that's his motivation. Nothing else. We clearly, they didn't, we don't deserve his love. He gives it anyway. It's like a father who compassionately gives to his daughter or son. He knows our needs and he delivers and he gives us what we need. So we learn from these two retellings of Israel's history, those who respond to God's love and grace in an honorable way do so by not forgetting but remembering not opposing but following God and not trusting in our own goodness or righteousness but trusting what God has provided, his goodness, his righteousness. I wonder where you are this morning. Are you going through a difficult season or struggling with sin? Probably all of us here have things in our lives that we wish were different. I think it's helpful in light of this psalm to think about an analogy. A friend of mine was just at the beach in Savannah, Georgia, not too long ago, and he was showing me these pictures of the tide. And for part of the day, they, were, they have a dock and they're out into this inlet. Part of the day, there's no water there. It's not dry ground, but it's, it's muddy. You can't take a boat out in it. And the waters go out, and then they come back during high tide. You've seen this any beach you've ever been to, probably. What was interesting is to think about it this way, that the tide really is our perspective of God's goodness, faithfulness, and love. It's constant. It's there, whether we see it or not. What the psalmist is encouraging us to do is to remember the high tide. Remember the way that God has provided and and delivered you and given you everything that you need so that when it seems like God is far away or that the tide is out, you will remember his faithfulness because it will come again. Oftentimes, God brings his people down to build them back up. We are called to remember that God is faithful. So the final point, Remembering Jesus. This psalm points to a greater reality. Because if you know the story of the rest of the Old Testament, King David and his faithfulness didn't last either. It becomes bleak. And many of the prophets write about this. You can read about it in Hosea chapters 5 and 6 this week as well, if you want. But the picture is bleak. But the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of everything that the Old Testament, the psalm and the Old Testament is pointing to, is a reality about our God. The God of all creation has looked down. And instead of seeing an enemy and a rebel like me and like you, he's made an offer to you to make you a son or a daughter. if you will trust him. He's done that for me, friends. Even me. He can do it 
and will do it for you. But how? Our God has been a faithful father. Even when we've been unfaithful children. And you know what our Heavenly Father did? For all of his glory, he put his name on the line for us. And you know what had to be done? He had to send someone better than the Israelites, better than King David, better than us. God sent his only begotten son who perfectly obeyed. And we see the perfect marriage of God's justice and wrath and his mercy and love and compassion meet at the cross. Friends, his purposes cannot be thwarted. He is made sure of that by sending us his son and atoning for our sin. Did you hear that language in the psalm? He's a compassionate God, atoning for their iniquity, for our iniquity, for your iniquity, for your sin. Once for all, perfectly, as Matt read earlier from Hebrews 9, we don't have to shed animals' blood again and again because Jesus died once for all. That's the length that our God will go to to redeem us. Who is like our God? In Jesus, we have the fulfillment of everything that this psalm was talking about and pointing us to. The entire Old Testament points to the one who would come to redeem God's people. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 through chapter 3 verse 6. Let's read this together. Therefore, he had to be, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ, he is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Friends, there is a corporate aspect to God's work here in the church. That's why we meet together, to remind one another of what God has done, of his glorious deeds. So the call of Asaph from Psalm 78 is for us to look to Jesus together, to remember Jesus together, and to remember what he has accomplished for us because 
of the depth of his love for us. We can't forget this, friends. It's too costly. Instead, remember what God has done and tell your children and your children's children so that they would set their hope in God and keep his commandments. Let's pray. Father, what a mighty, powerful, and awesome God you are. What a gracious, merciful, loving Father you are that you would speak to us and give us your word and call us to be a people for yourself. Thank you for this call from Psalm 78 to remember. Help us to have ears to hear hearts and minds that will recall of your good deeds, your glorious deeds, all that you've done for us from the beginning of time all the way through Christ and that that would propel us forward all the way until he comes again. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hope in you and you alone for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.